So, this is us minus like a few people. Ben's working. He said he's going to get to bed about 8 last night. He probably needed to because you guys drove for what? 20, 24 hours. 24 hours. 24 hours, 7 days, 24 hours. No, 6 days. 24. I got the night shift. You got the night shift. I was sitting with her. So you're awake. Well, I would assume that you were awake for 24 hours because you don't sleep in any car. <coughs> so you're awake for 24 hours. You go 7 days. You're awake for 24 hours or whatever. Drive, or even if you're not, you're driving back in a bus that is not comfortable. It's not written in that bus. It is. You get real tired of it after like a drive down to Knoxville, much less Texas. Um, and I'm sure that you guys are going to tell us about how cool it was and how much fun you had and the things you got to do, the people you got to meet, the stuff you got to buy me, and that sort of thing. That sort of thing. <laughs> but. But coming to the end of that, reaching the end of that, you were probably pretty tired, ready for some rest. Hard work, ready to take a nap, right? And that's kind of what we talked about last week. Y'all weren't here. But we talked about how rest comes at the end of our labor. Like God rested on the seventh day, not the first day. God didn't prep himself so that he could go do work for seven days. He, he, he worked hard and then he rested. And, and the promise of that rest, like we keep talking about, this idea of rest, we keep coming back to, is a good thing. But like, rest is not laziness. Rest is not idleness. Rest is rejuvenation from doing something empowered by God for the glory of God, right? Rest is something that we, we I'll sit say down. Hello. Sorry. Rest is something that we get to at the end of our labor. And as he's been doing through this whole chapter, the author in Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews 4 still, um, is one more time going to try to hammer home how important rest is and how he does not want you to miss out on it. And again, as we read this, we're driving home the point that there is a promised rest from God. There is something that God wants to give you apart from yourself, something you can't earn on your own. A work that he's already accomplished and he is offering you the fruits of that labor. And we don't want you to miss out on that. So when we pick up here in Hebrews 4... Verse 11. He's going to say this. Let us therefore, since we know that, that we can miss out on rest, since we know that we can reject God, and since we know we don't want to do that because rest is a good thing, <coughs> let us strive to enter that rest. That makes sense, right? If rest is a good thing, and rest is something that we can miss out on, let's strive not to do that. Let's try really hard not to miss out on this opportunity. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So he keeps driving home this idea that you don't want to miss out on this rest. And, and we see this throughout Scripture. You know, like if you think back to a lot of the things that Jesus would say, he'd say the same thing twice. That's kind of the way of saying this is really important, like verily, verily. I say to you, like, really make sure you get this point. So he said three or four times just in chapter 4, beware, let's try not to miss out on this thing. Let's try not to lose our opportunity to enter into this rest that God is offering to us. So he's repeating this message over and over again. And he's saying, if you disobey, right, because so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If you disobey, that is to reject God, to walk away from God, to miss out on this opportunity that God has offered to us. If we miss that out, we're going to miss out on the rest. There is no other way to enter into God's rest apart from the way that God has presented. Right? Any disobedience of the sort, any sort of rejection of this offer of rest that God has reached out to us, that God has given to us freely, is not going to work. There's no other option. There's no other way. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Um, and so what does he talk about for the rest of the chapter? Well, he talks about the Bible. He talks about the Word of God. And, and I think this really harkens back to what he started with. Where was it? At the beginning of chapter 2, when he first started giving a warning about missing out on salvation. And he said, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Right. So, so you don't want to drift away from the Word of God. You don't want to drift away from the message that we've been preaching. You don't want to drift away from the Gospel just because you've been neglecting it. So I think that this kind of puts a nice bow on, the, on that thought. This kind of ties it off where he's saying, look, we started this, this part of this conversation by saying, I don't want you to drift away from the body. I don't want you to drift away from the church. I don't want you to drift away from the gospel. So what are we going to do to protect ourselves from drifting away? And he says, let me just remind you what the Bible actually is. Let me just remind you what the word of God actually is. And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about today. I don't have a ton of like really fancy Hebrew Greek stuff for us to kind of break down. I don't have a lot of, you know, language for us to look at. How is he phrasing this and what does he mean by this? What I really want us to do, hopefully by the end of this, if we don't love this book, hopefully we love this book. And if we already kind of like this book, Hopefully we realize that we need this book and that we want this book even more. That's my goal. My goal is that we would love the Word of God and that our lives would be invested in knowing what it says and knowing what it means for us and knowing what we're supposed to do with this book. Because he starts describing here in verse 12. He says, for the word of God is living. Right? So that's the first thing that I want to figure out. What does he mean by the word of God is living? 
Well, if you go back to when we were studying in Acts, um, you had all of these people who were getting saved, all of these people who were hearing the gospel, joining the church, so many to the point that you needed to have certain people set apart just to take care of particular groups of people because the apostles were no longer able to take care of all of the needs that needed to be met within the church. And so they called these deacons. They called these guys to come help take care of the physical needs of the church. The apostles were not able to oversee. One of those guys was Stephen. And Stephen was really excited about the church. And Stephen was really excited about the word of God. So much so that when Stephen was set apart, Stephen was taken into a trial. And Stephen was going to be killed because he was part of the church and because of the things that he was saying about Jesus. That he was able to kind of step back and he was just able to basically outline all of the Old Testament for the people who were about to stone him. Right? So they're about to kill him. He says, let me just recount every single thing that I know. And those of us who have studied the Holy Spirit know that the Holy Spirit's going to empower him to be able to say all those things in that moment. He's going to give him the right words to say. But still, he knew his Bible well enough that he could articulate the truth of the whole Old Testament what they had at that point to all these people. And so when he's describing what the Bible is, I think we can really learn something interesting. And this is going to come from Acts 7, verses 37 and 38. I'm going to be reading a lot of things, so you can try to turn and keep up with me, or if you want to just make a note and go back and read all of these later, I would recommend that. Because I want you to go back and read again all of these later. So, Acts 7, verses 37 and 38, he says... And, and again, he's kind of going, counting the whole history of Israel. And he's to the point where he's talking about who Moses was. He says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So what does that mean? He says, living oracles. It means that these aren't just words to be written down for us to be like, oh, those are nice words. These words are alive, and as we're going to see in a minute, these words do things. These words accomplish things. These are not just, this is not reading a story just for the sake of reading a story. This is not fiction. This is not nonfiction. This isn't just a blog that you read where somebody's writing down their thoughts. This isn't a news article. This is actually something whose words are alive. So what is what is words that are alive? What does that mean for us? It means that it's not just some book that we just read for pleasure. It's not like we don't just want to read this just to feel good about some story. We don't want to read just for a happy ending to some story. We're not just trying to find interest in some sort of character arc and how this guy goes up and how he faces problems and comes down and then ultimately he overcomes. Oh man, that was a good story. Let's move on to a different story. Because these words are more than just that. This is a book whose words give life. This is a book whose words sustain life. Think about what Jesus said when he was being tempted, right? So, so he's hanging out there. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. We had a guy's night several months back, and we tried not to eat for one day. And we were all grumbling and complaining. Well, several of us were. Some of us were tougher. I was hungry. We tried not to eat for one day, 
and we were we were frustrated. We were we were annoyed. We were ready to eat something. Jesus went forty days, and then Satan comes along and says, "Tell you what? Why don't you just make yourself some bread? You can turn this stone into bread, right? Then you have something to eat." So he's tempting him with this thing. And what is it that Jesus says? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I will be sustained by the word of God. I will survive, I will get by, because the word of God is in me. I have studied God's word, it is in me, and I can use it to get me through this trial, get me through this temptation, get me through this hard time. I can use these words to keep me going. Because these words are life. These are the words that when we read, talk about all of these people who were dead and then were alive. Sometimes physically, but most times we talk about that, we're talking spiritually. These are, these are words, these are the words that we use to say, I was dead and Jesus made me alive. Right? Right? We talk, when we talk about the gospel, and, and Louis Giglio says this really well, the, the gospel isn't about making bad people good. And it's not about making good people better. It's about making dead people alive. Because dead people can't do anything. Dead people don't make choices. Dead people, dead people have no say. And we are spiritually dead. Our separation from God keeps us spiritually dead. We can do nothing for ourselves. But these words, the words of Jesus, when we get these words into our system, they make us alive. The Holy Spirit uses these words to bring us to life, to, to, to kind of shock us back into existence, to shock us back into a life that is ready to interact with and love Jesus. So it says, the word of God is living. What's the second thing it says here in verse 12? It says, the word of God is living and active. What do we think of when we think of active? What do we think of when we think of not active? You probably think of sitting around watching TV. That is what I tend to want to be. It's one of those inertia things, an object you rest, like to stay at rest kind of thing. That's kind of how I usually am. I'm trying to get over that. But the Word of God is moving. The Word of God is doing something. The Word of God is, is taking... Now, we, we can look at this now, we can read it kind of as a story with this, with this big arc and this whole plot line all throughout history from the very beginning up till now and kind of where we're going and it, and it tells the whole thing. It gives us pictures of the whole thing so that we can understand God's intent for everything. But, but the Word of God has been kind of moving us through history. The Word of God has been... These words, because God gives us these words, God sits down with Moses, or God sits down with Noah, or God sits down with Abraham, and He says, this is the way things are going to be. This is what I'm going to do. Write these words down so that you'll know what I have in mind and so the word of God is moving creation from somewhere to God's predetermined end. So God has an idea of where we're going, and he's using his words to move us there, to get us there, take us from one place to another. Right? And, and if you go to Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, I think that I, I look at a bunch of different verses that said that I think this one said it the best. And it says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, 
water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Right? So all of those things have a purpose. They're going to they're come down with an intent. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So what God is saying here through Isaiah is that when I say something, I have an intent for it. My word is not going to return back void. The thing that I intend for my word to do, it is going to do. So I don't think that we can sit here and say, God says, I want, I want people to get saved, or, or I want my church to go out and make disciples and think that he's not going to do that. We've used this verse a lot. Like, I don't think God's going to say the harvest is ripe for the picking, but the laborers are few. If he doesn't mean we need to pray that there would be more laborers, and they're going to go out and there's going to be a rich harvest. I don't think that he would give those words to us. I don't think he would say those words. He's saying right here, I would not say those words if I didn't have an intent for what they meant. If I didn't know that I had somewhere that they were supposed to go and something they were supposed to accomplish, right? Just like the rain. The rain falls with a particular intent. It's not like the rain's like, I guess I'll rain today and then I'll go home. The rain doesn't have a say in this. The rain falls so that it can water the earth. God just like God intends for the rain to fall, He intends that the words that come out of mouth, the words that are in this book, are going to have some sort of effect. They are going to, they are going to affect us, they're going to affect creation. And they're going to work out His plan. Because if we read this whole book, Right? All of Scripture is one big narrative. Right? We tend to look at one small piece at a time because it's really hard to preach. Well, this week I'm going to preach the whole Bible. Right? That's difficult. That would take us a long time because we would lose a lot of detail. But you actually can do it when you say that there's basically this one big story of a broken people that God pursues and brings back to himself for his own glory. That's scripture. That's the Bible. The whole point is, we are broken, God makes us better. For his glory. He does it for himself, not for our good, but for his glory. And he's using the word of God to move us towards that. Right? He's using this book to take us from the dead people that we were, to the alive, thriving, living growing church that is making disciples and is on mission for him 24-7. And it's, and it's, and it's this book that we all have that is going to show us how we're to do this and, and it's going to inspire us to do this and it's going to empower us to do this. It's through these words that he's going to accomplish that. So back to verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. And then we get this really awesome phrase. Sharper than any two-edged sword. So I was trying to think of a fun way to talk about this. And the only way I could come up with was the old Left Behind series. Um, I know most of my family read parts of it. Who all read the whole Left Behind series? Did anybody try to start it and not finish it? Who will try to start it up? Did anybody make it to, her, to book six? 
that didn't finish it? Okay. Book six was my favorite. It was called Assassin. I mean, obviously. Um, so there's this guy in the book who I didn't know how to pronounce when I first started reading it because his name was Jewish. His name was Kyle Rosenzweig, and I thought it was Chain Rosenweig. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. But, so there's this guy, and this whole time in the books, he's the kind of this For a while there, he keeps rejecting the gospel over and over and over again. Anyways, in this story, at one point, one of the characters comes over to him and says, "Want to see this new project I'm working on?" And he says, "Sure." He said, "I'm trying to figure out if I can make the sharpest blade possible." Just really old work, and I'm like, "Okay." You don't remember this? Ultimately, he uses it to kill the Antichrist in the, in the book, but that's a story, different story for a different day. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. So he brings him in, and he says, this is just me remembering stupid details from everything. And he says, look at this blade. And he shows it to him. He says, you can't actually see the tip of this blade because it's so, I've ground it down so fine that you have to look at it through a microscope to actually get to see the point that it comes to. Like the naked eye can't perceive how sharp this blade actually is. Don't even try to touch it because your finger would be cut off before you would even feel it cutting into your skin. Like, that's how sharp. And he, like, and he, like, shows them all these examples of, like, dropping paper on it and all this stuff. And you're like, why are they doing this? And if you're thinking through this, is actually foreshadowing. That's an English lesson for another day. And there you go. It was foreshadowing for the end of the book. Actually, for the beginning of the next book, there was this cliffhanger. It was crazy. You should read it. If you're dispensationalist or something. Anyways, I'm sorry. I digress. But what he's trying to say is, I have made the sharpest blade possible. And with this blade, it will just easily, finally slice through just about anything and will meet zero resistance. And get that idea. I use that idea to kind of get in mind. He's talking about, like, if you can try to just touch the end of it, it's going to go straight through your finger, straight through your bone. You're never going to even feel it until your finger's gone. And then it's going to hurt like crap. Right? And what he, and the picture the author here is trying to give us is that that's nothing compared to what the Word of God is the way the Word of God, what the Word of God is capable of cutting through. So get the idea of that sharpest blade, get the idea of even the kind of slightly dull blade in your house that you've been cutting something with, you've sliced the top of your finger, or, or something like that. Like, like, like you cut yourself, and it's already bleeding before you even really notice. You look down, and you, you get this idea. Right. That is what picture is that he's trying to give us. It says, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I'll come back to that, but I want to think of this. What do we think of when we think of a sword? What do you do with a sword? Do you chop vegetables? No, you cut people's heads off. That is the best, that's the best answer you could have given. The Bible, he's saying, this is a weapon of war, right? And I could go off on this huge rant about how we're supposed to take it out of the world and we're supposed to start cutting down unbelievers with it, right? And there are some people who focus on that part, right? Take the Bible and go start chopping people down. Go start telling people about how terrible they are. I'm sure you could get, get to a point where there's 
some of that, where, where the word of God is going to be offensive people, it's going to make people feel bad or broken down or whatever. But I think one of the things that he's trying to trying to call the believers to, you got to remember, he's talking to believing Hebrews who are worried that they might should go back to their old ways. So these are people that have already believed the gospel to some degree, and he's warning them about falling away, and he's saying, the word of God is capable of cutting you down. And so if we're going to think of the word of God as a weapon of war, I don't want us to think of it as a weapon of war against unbelievers, as a, word, as a weapon of war against other people, right? Let's think of it as a weapon of war to use against ourselves, to use against our own wickedness, to war against the sin that is in us, our pride, or whatever it is that we may struggle with. So if we're going to say the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, we need to realize that we're using that as a weapon to hack away at the sin that's in our own lives. And it's going to lash out, and I wrote that this way, and this, I'm kind of taking some of this from where we're going in the last in verse 13. But it's going to kind of lash out at the secrecy of our wickedness, right? It's going to hack away the layers that we've built up around ourselves to keep people from seeing us for who we really are. Right? It's going to break down all of this fakeness, all of this fake us, and reveal us for who we really are. And then ultimately, who Jesus is because of what he's done through us. Does that make sense? See where I'm going here? So, so yeah, we can take this idea and say, the word of God is this really sharp sword that we should go out and we should use to chop off people's heads. Right? But, that I don't think is the real point. I think it's really that it's just to cut away our own sentences. And we have to realize, when you're talking swords and stuff, that swords tend to injure and hurt. And sometimes reading the Bible is going to hurt us. You're going to find that verse that says, here's this thing that you are. Here's this thing that you do. Here's this thing that you are already guilty of. And if you are guilty of these things, God is disgusted by what you are doing. And that's going to be like, I don't like hearing that. I don't like feeling that. And that's what the Bible has to do. It has to reveal us to us what we are, who we are, what we are like, so we can realize that I need Jesus. I need to be made clean by Jesus. Because there is nothing that I can do about this without Him working through me. So, so the Bible is living, active, hurts us to read because it, it cuts away at the parts of us that we would want to hold on to. And then we get to verse 13. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Uh, we were reading Luke 12 last Sunday evening, and a verse very similar to this came up. We keep, we keep talking about how crazy it is that Luke and Hebrews, as we're reading them, are kind of sinking up a little bit. It's as though God wrote the same book with the same intention. This whole thing is supposed to work well together because it keeps doing so. So we read Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and it said, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. 
That sounds very similar to what he just said here. No creature is hidden from Nothing, there is nothing that the Word of God cannot illuminate in our lives. There is no darkness that we can hide away somewhere and think that eventually the Word of God is not going to reveal that to us or to others in our lives. There is no hiding from what this book says about who we are. There is no, there is no, I get to keep this thing for me, I get to go off and I get to enjoy this thing. And the Bible is never going to address it, or the Bible is never going to call me to account for it. That's not an option. Everything, as it hacks away, as this sword starts cutting away at who we are, cutting away at what it is that has corrupted us, nothing is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I was preaching one three or so, not three months ago. It's been a little while, a couple of months ago. We were talking about, we were talking about gender roles, and we started, and we got to the end of Genesis chapter 2, and, and it described at the end of creation. We have perfect man, perfect woman, perfect marriage, right there together, and it describes them as being naked and unashamed, right? Same language he's using here. Naked and exposed. Naked. Unashamed. And we talked about that. That, I had a note here that said nakedness is a good thing. And I could just leave it at that, but I think I should go a little bit farther. The idea that we would have nothing between us and God, or between us and the rest of the church. There's nothing about us that we wish to hide anymore. That's the goal. The goal is that we get to the point where there's no, no need for secrecy. Because our lives are so wrapped up in this book and in the holiness that this book prescribes to us and then the holiness that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live filled with, revealed by. That, that's the point. Where everything else, all the nastiness, all the brokenness, all the wickedness is, 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 is torn away and all that's left is this holy vessel that God has made to show off how powerful and how good he is to us. Right? So, so exposing our true nature, right? Verse, verse 12 where it says, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hack away, it's going to cut us off, it's going to tear away these things, these bad parts of us. Exposing our true nature, right? Revealing us for who we really are. Everything being exposed. Not being able to hide who we are or what we do or what we, or what we love. Knowing that in the end, all of this is going to come out. Right? That's the big thought. Knowing that there is nothing that we can do to keep whatever it is in our life secret forever. We are revealed for who we truly are. And we're then able to say, I can't do anything about this. I need Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who's able to take all of that away. He's, away, he's able to take away our sin. He's able to take away our shame. And that's the whole, I mean, and that's the gospel, right? That's this gospel that we preach. That's, that's the point that he's trying to make to the Hebrews here. The author's trying to say, I don't want you to miss out on the rest that God is offering you. I don't want you to miss out on this good.
good thing that God is giving to you. And you have to be exposed for who you truly are so that you'll see Jesus for what he is truly able to give. And you'll see Jesus for what he truly was able to accomplish, something that you were unable to do on your own. And then you'll run to Jesus. So what do I want our attitude to be towards the Bible? What should our attitude be? And, and some of us, you know, it's kind of a spectrum. Because, I mean, you start at, I was dead in my sins, and Jesus made me alive. There's going to be this whole spectrum between, I'm just figuring out what this book says to this kind of ideal point that I want us to get to where we just, I mean, this is my first thought, that, that we love this book. We need to love this book. If you've ever listened to a Francis Chan sermon, he loves this book. He sweats just reading this book. You know? That's what I want for us. And, and Alright, this, this, is, this is week one after all of our, our various transitions. Different people are going to be moving. Everybody that's going to move that I know of don't tell me something to surprise me after I get done with this. Everyone that has said, I'm going to be moved. God is calling us somewhere else. They're, they're out. So this is us. Right? This is us. I want us to love this book. If we can't start anywhere else, I want us to love the Word of God. I tweeted this verse out last night. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Uh, says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. If we love this book, we're going to want more of it. If you find something you love, you want more of it. Think of whatever that food is that you love. You want more of it. Think of whatever that TV show is that you love, or that movie that you love, you want to watch it. And it's easy for us to connect to those things, but it's sometimes harder for us to connect to this. The kind of love that we have for our favorite food, or our favorite show, or our favorite movie, or our family, all need to compare, all need to pale in comparison to the amount of love that we have for this book. Right? Because this book is life. This book is living and active. And he says, your words were found. I, ate this. I tasted this. Once I got a taste of this, I realized that it was a joy and a delight to me. That's what I want us to be. I want us to joy and delight in this book. So what do we have to do to get to this? What do we have to do to get to that point? So I want us to love it. If we're going to love it, we should read it. We should read it. I'm not going to ask us all to raise our hands. How many of us read this regularly? How many of us, how many of us take time to actually read this? How many of us take time to let this define us for our day? Right? Paul used this verse several weeks back. He used Psalm 90 verse 14. It says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. How many of us start our day being filled with the Word of God so that the joy that we get from His words 
can fill us up and fill up our day, can define where we go because we have filled our lives with this book. There are so many places, and I don't have a ton of references here for you for this, but that say, daily, I'm meditating on the Word. Are we in here all the time? Are we reading this all the time? Are we making this, are we making provision to put this word into our lives? Are we making provision? And so I'm saying, yes, we need to read more of this. Yes, we should try to read this book every day. We should love this book every day. This book should fill us with joy every day. And there are lots of different things that you can start off. There are lots of plans that you can use to read. I'm not saying you should try to, you have to do one of these read through the Bible. If it's hard, don't start. You don't have to start at the beginning, right? Because if you start at the beginning, you're going to get to Leviticus and Numbers really quick, right? And that's where a lot of people get bogged down because that stuff is hard to wrap around. Start with something easy. I don't care where you start as long as you're reading this book. Start with one of the Gospels. Start with, start with one of the Epistles. Those read a lot like you would expect to read. There's not a, it's, it's really straightforward. So find somewhere that you can start that you will read, and the more and more you read this book, and the more and more you are delighted by this book, the more and more delight you're going to find in the parts that are harder to understand, too. Right? I found that. It's because it's like I really like reading through, you know, like Corinthians, Romans. I can I can pick up on what he's trying to say in some of those parts really easy, so I'll go read those. But now I'm like seeing where, or even reading in Hebrews where he's going back and he's quoting all these places in the Psalm or in, or in the Pentateuch and all these Old Testament laws and things and he's saying, this is the purpose of these things you're starting to see. Oh man, there's like real meat to those things. It's not just about the ceremonial law that these people were taking care of thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. So I can go back and I can read the law. Or I can go back and I can read prophecy and I can see Oh man, this is what he's trying to say with this. And I can find joy and delight in those areas. Now that I've started, now that he's, he's allowed me to better understand his word, I can find delight in even those harder to read sections. Does that make sense? So, I mean, if, if you struggle reading Leviticus, if you can't figure out what he's trying to say, don't worry about it. There's a lot of Bible here to read, and all of it is living, and all of it is active. I mean, 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching. All of it is good for you. I don't care where you start, just start and just read. You could also come back here tonight at 5.30, because that's all we do on Sunday nights, is we just sit down and we just read the Bible. I don't know what percentage we've read in our first year and a half, but we've read a lot of Bible year and a half, just on Sunday night, just reading it together. And I think that's been one of the cooler things that we've done. So you can come back and do that. But like I said, the more you read, the more joy you're going to find in this, and the more you're going to love the Bible. Because if that's the point, where we just absolutely love this, we love this book, the more you read it, the more you're going to love it. So read it. Here's the last one. This one's, this one's probably one of the more practical ones. And this is one of the ones that is harder for me. 
super distracted. Let me just start with just sweat. I'll memorize that. All right, I got it. I accomplished that. Let me find a three word first now. Right? We should memorize it. Psalm 37, verses 30 and 31. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. If the word of God is in us, if we're, if we're putting this in us to keep, and we're going to hold on to it, we're going to remember it, we're going to know it, it's going to be in our hearts, our minds, it's going to keep us from going back to those things that have tarnished us, that have made us look, that have made us broken, those things that have drug us down our whole lives. Our path will be straighter the more Bible we have in us. Deuteronomy 11, 18-21 You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign of your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land, and that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. You should have these words in your heart, in your mind. Write them down. Keep them near you so that you can remind yourself what they say. So that you can teach your family, you can teach your children. So that in conversation, it just comes up. I'm talking with you and the Bible just starts coming out of my mouth. That's what happened with Stephen, right? He's about to get killed and the Bible just starts coming out of his mouth. That's our goal. We put so much in that it just starts coming out. So that we don't, I don't have to say, alright, we're going to go out, we're going to make disciples of this neighborhood. And you say, I don't know what to say. I say, get some Bible in you and then just start talking to people and let it come out. And just let the Bible come out. Here's one more. Proverbs 6, 21 and 22. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. Make this word so much a part of your life that it just becomes a part of your life. Like, like add it in, and then ultimately it's going to be the thing that comes out of you. It's going to be the thing that defines you. It's going to be the thing that protects you from the sin that may tempt you. Right? How did Jesus avoid the temptation that Satan presented to him? We were talking about it earlier. He knew the Bible. Satan said, you can do this. He said, no, 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 no. This is what the Word of God says. And the Word of God is sustaining me. The Word of God is making me able to keep my past straight to to avoid the temptation you're presenting to me. The Word of God breaks us down and then builds us back up as something that glorifies God. It breaks us down first, though, right? And that's why I really like this. I told you I was going to kind of set up your song. That's why I really like the song because it says, we are going to be broken and surrendered to God for His glory. Like, like He Himself was broken for us. 
so that we can be broken of who we are so that we can glorify Him. That's what the Word of God does. It reveals to us who we are so that we can become something that we could not become on our own. We cannot glorify God on our own. We cannot enter into the rest that God has promised us on our own. It is only by the work of Jesus that we are able to do those things. It is only by His power, His goodness. So we have to think of this rest as a good thing. This, this promise that He's given us. We have to think of what it is that He wants for us as a good thing. We have to want that. And we have to realize that the more and more we want this book, the more and more we're going to understand what our lives have to look like as people who are striving to enter.